Hello and welcome to the Talking Funny podcast. This is the introductory episode where myself, Howard Reed, and Professor Sophie Scott interview each other about what we hope to achieve with the project. Enjoy. My name's Sophie Scott and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist at University College London and I'm here with... Howard Reed. Uh, I am a stand-up comedian, first and foremost, but I'm also a writer and animator. And we are working on a project called Talking Funny, and this is a podcast that we're trying out as part of that project. Um, and we are... The whole project is really trying to look at voice and performance and people's experience of identity and difference through their voice. And we are going to be working with different people and lots of different voices in over the next few weeks. And part of that is going to be talking about Talking Funny on this podcast. So when comics talk about finding their voice, for me, it's when they find a way of expressing their ideas in a way that's most accessible to the audience. It's, it's how you get what's funny in your head to be as funny in as many other different people's heads as possible. And for me, my most successful comedy voice is Little Howard, who is a six-year-old version of me, uh, who I perform in double act with. Uh, I animate him. Takes ages. It's a really high-maintenance way of doing comedy. Um, uh, but it's, it's the, the most successful way I've done comedy. Um, but I do comedy in lots of different ways. I do stand-up when I, I'm in, when I MC a regular club in Dorking, home of comedy. Uh, and I find I'm most happy on stage when I'm improvising and I'm being myself. Mm. But I don't find myself as a person funny, despite the fact all the funny things come from me. Um, so I'm fascinated by finding out that how comedians got that moment where their comedy clicked and the, they, the way they express themselves. And it's, the comedy voice isn't just how you talk, but it's also how you appear on stage and uh, mm. how you put yourself across. Um, uh, and that's why I find it fascinating, because I'm a comedian. Why do you find it fascinating as a co cognitive... And also, can you explain what a cognitive neuroscientist <laughs> is? I sometimes call you a neuro neurologist and you tell me off. <laughs> I'm, well, I'd be flying under false colours if I call myself a neurologist, because a neurologist has a medical training and then just diagnoses people with horrible diseases. Um, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, and all that really means is, because there's a huge, there's a whole world of neuroscience, there's, you know, neuroscience is people looking at little bits of molecules within brain cells and all kinds of different things, and cognitive neuroscientists are basically interested in the brain as it relates to behaviour. So we're kind of interested in talking about brains in a way that translates into... You know how things go wrong for patients in terms of their experience, and how we can kind of understand the sorts of data that we get from brain scans that tell us what brains are up to. So it's it's quite a quite a broad brush approach. We're not looking in nanomolecules or even brain individual cells. Um, and I'm interested in voices and how we why we sound the way we do and how our brains decode that and the sort of stuff we communicate with our voices. And in a general sense, I was interested in talking funny because of this idea that it's always a performance. You're never there's no kind of default voice. It's just you emitting a voice. It's always something you're doing, and it's an act. It's a it's a it's a it's expressing a lot of stuff in addition to the words that you're saying. And I'm interested in that in the general sense. I'm interested in how what that's like for people for whom their voice is a source of you know anxiety or difference um, or change. And I'm particularly interested in, in funny voices and talking funny. And the reason, really, the sort of starting point for thinking about it as a funny thing was about comedy and voices, because there's 
there's a number of different factors to this, but for example, what, what is the difference between getting up and talking and getting up and showing that you intend to be funny? Mm. Actually, a, a, a way of speaking that is a you know is mar- is marking to the audience. This is what I expect you to do. Yeah. And there's not one way of solving that. It's not like comedians also don't do the exact same thing. But there's something that you do that audiences pick up on and respond to differently. And if people don't do it, you can see them. You know, you can see, particularly if there's any kind of ambiguity around the situation. Yeah. You see people get confused. So I would never talk like this on stage as a comedian. I would always be always thinking, what? how do I make everyone laugh next? Yeah. Um, be that with a joke in the back of my head or something happening in the room that I can exploit and make funny. Um, you have performed stand-up comedy, um, uh, usually in an outreach sort of way, talking about what you talk about, but, it, but trying to talk about laughter whilst being funny in itself. Um, f- so voices-wise... Do you, are you aware of a voice you put on when you're being funny? And how different is that to when you're lecturing as a cognitive neuroscientist? Do you have a voice for each, do you think? Or I think I try and land fairly heavily onto um, lecturer when I've got an audience in front of me because that's a very familiar set of skills to me. If you are someone who is an academic, you, we have a lot of experience of doing talks. We have to do lots and lots of talks. And it is anxiety-provoking, but it does mean you have more experience of getting up on a stage and expecting everyone to shut up. And obviously, from that point onwards, you're not remotely funny at all. You're giving a scientific talk. But you have some experience of just being on the stage and making a noise. Mm. So I think it gives you a very easy default position to fall back on. I I think that's... I think that's what I do. Although I have to say, the one time I listened to a recording of myself, all I heard was a terrified woman from Blackburn. So maybe, <laughs> maybe I'm not being as blasé about it as I assume. What's very important is when you're introduced on stage. Is your introduction an introduction in a comedy club? An introduction can make can make or break a comedian, particularly a comedian who isn't ready to be introduced badly. You can. There's some great stories of people being introduced. Like I used to, when I was new and I was doing the student circuit. Um, more experienced comedians who had probably had a chip on the shoulder or didn't like me for some reason would um, would introduce me uh, as this next guy he's very clever you've got to re- listen very carefully to him which I thought when he but they did it I thought w- was them going oh thank you very much for setting me up I'm, I'm, I'm a bit I'm a bit, I'm a bit cerebral and a bit left field, uh, but what actually they were doing was uh, this guy th- thinks he's clever. <laughs> Rip him to shreds, please. It was what they were doing, um, uh, which is which. It took me a very long time to work that out. Why do I die every yeah. time that guy introduces me? But yes. In such a nice way. Um, do you think that when you're performing on st- on a I mean, you don't, you don't, we've never played jonglers. Oh, no, I'm I'm, I'm in no sense. One of the things, the worst things that can happen to me for an academic audience is people say, oh, she's done stand up comedy. I don't know. Would you mind not saying that? (laughs) uh, By any standard, a stand up comedian, you know, but any kind of, no comedian with the experience I've had would call themselves that. And also, it makes the audience go, well, I think I'll be the judge of that. And they're like, or they expect it to be funny. And it's not, you know, particularly if it's going to be a really dull academic talk, no one needs that. Um, I think there's. Oh, now I've now forgot. What was the question you asked me? There was a point to that. There was oh, a, um, oh, I'm getting introduced. Yeah. Um, only if people make a very. So Robin Ince used to always introduce me by saying, "Oh, she's my favourite vivisectionist." And what he meant was by that was that I part of the literature on rat on laughter is about rats and laughter, and all the science is very lovely and they tickle the rats. Um, but I I didn't do that research, and I vivisection is a phrase that really strongly is valence for many people. <laughs> Would you mind not saying that I do vivisection? <laughs> because I don't do that and lots of people get quite, quite 
she was very emotional about it. So um, I think I think that sometimes if people. I think that was like a marker of, you know, I'm going to kind of science it up. And sometimes people want that, but mm. often they kind of only really want it from some... If somebody's, like, giving the, the signs of being a kind of proper mad professor scientist, then people will be happy with that. If you don't look like that's what quite where you're landing, then I think it probably doesn't absolutely work in your favour to be trying to give up a big scientific I am at the start. Yeah, yeah. So... I said we won't know until we've talked to the people we're going to talk to, but how do you think finding out about how comedians relate to an audience, how can that be useful in the wider world about how real people with real problems relate to? Because I think I think what we the more I look into it, I think a lot of my comedy voice comes from my problems. I've, I'm dyslexic and I... Um, I think I'm probably secretly a writer, uh, not a stand-up comedian, uh, but but I approach the creative world through a spoken medium rather than the written medium because I felt the written word, for, ex- I, for example, I've written a load of notes um, on my iPad and I can't read them in this situation. <laughs> they just they just they just turned into words, um, and so a medium by which I'm sort of thinking on my feet and everything's in my head and not written down is. Uh, is a better medium for me to start being a creative person um, or was um, and now I'm, I'm very much a writer I sit and mm. uh, write things down um, where am I going with this um, uh, yeah so I, I think it will we will find out things about the performers and what they went through to become that made them want to become a performer um, mm. so that feels like that might be interesting for the sort of wider world but have you what are your thoughts on that I'm interested in the the journey into performance and I'm interested in the um I'm interested in, in sort of how much people even think about their voices because one of the things that's odd about voices in a sort of general sense is that while it's all a, you know it's a performance we're using parts of the brain that aren't completely gives voluntary control over our articulators and most animals don't have that so it's a you know it's it's a it's an active thing we're not just reacting with our voices it's a thing you know we're sort of putting it out there as much as it would do as if we were dancing um but also we don't really hear our voices when we speak mm. so there's like really trivially boring stuff but really practically important things like your ear simply does not transmit the sounds of your voice, the way it transmits, like as soon as your ear knows you're speaking, it kind of takes, it dampens the signal, <laughs> and your brain turns itself off. Like the both parts of the brain you lose to listen to other people, you turn off when you speak. <laughs> so it's like your brain's doing everything to go. Oh, I know this is her. We know about this. You know the important stuff's out there. Let's let's keep our attention out there, guys. Let's not worry too much about this. And it literally, um, ignores literally, you. Wow. literally, it's why people don't know they're shouting. Or, you know, but if like someone's shouting in a restaurant or shouting on their mobile phone, they often don't realise they're doing it. We're very bad at judging the level of our voice because we just don't hear our voice yeah. the same way. It's why no one thinks they have an accent or no one notices. Or, like, I didn't realise I sounded like a terrified woman from Blackburn the first time I did stand-up because I didn't hear that because I didn't really hear any of it. So if you turn that back round into performance, I'm very interested in people who are doing this for a living and who often have, I think, a different sort of set of insights into their voice that come from that. And I'm interested in what those are. And then really how that can feed back into both... I mean, I'm just interested in how comedians do it. What are the sorts of things people are doing with their voice to make it work for comedy in those spaces? But also how we can kind of 
learn aspects about that kind of relationship you start to develop with your voice and how we might kind of widen that out for other people and other voices who perhaps have never had that opportunity because everyone's always told them their voice is awful. Mm. We had a guy, um, we were talking to a guy last week, Naheen, who's going to work with us on this in the future, and he stutters when he was first doing his PhD. Someone told him that, well, obviously he wouldn't be able to get a job as an academic with a, with a stammer, so, you know, what else have you thought about doing with your PhD? Just... You can't talk, so you can't do this job. Yeah. And that's extraordinary. And he was saying that uh, the focus of lots of of, of treating, in inverted commas, people with stutter, is to cure the stutter, is to stop them, to, to give you fluency. And so I got the feeling that he... We didn't talk about it, but he is more interested in just getting people to get over him having a stutter. Is yeah. that That's the... Yeah. yeah. Which is... Yeah. And, the, and as soon as you do... and. What would be useful for me is to what face would you like me to pull while you're stuttering, <laughs> like, what, like and stuff like that, which which sounds crass. But how do I make someone who's got got a stammer or a stutter feel less stressed when talking to me? That will help it mm. happen. Yeah, and things like that is. And just the sort of um, the fact that these things are always happening in interaction. We only. We only we only do this we only do this with our voices really when there's other people around us. I was thinking the other day that if we were like studies on songbirds, we're always describing where birds sing and what they're doing. We don't really care about what those individual notes mean. And if you did that with humans, you'd say, oh, these are these are these are animals that sing, make their call primarily for social reasons. They do it when there's other humans around mm. them, and. There's always an audience. There's always this kind of... It's never just a broadcast. There's always a reaction that you have some sort of sense of. So there's a, that whole, you know, so many different spaces where we're performing voices. And comedy is like an interesting lab for looking at that because the audience is expected to do things immediately in reaction to the comedian. So mm. you have this instant sort of insight into what's going on and how people are reacting like a... All parts of the interaction are being sort of made manifest. So I've made a list of comedians who I'm aware of them having a moment when they've discovered their voice. Um, one of the most famous ones is Richard Pryor, um, a black American comedian, who started out, I think, in the 50s. I haven't researched this at all. Uh, who was very much playing for a white audience, was, um, was a little bit... Started off quite mainstream started off I think trying to pander to a white audience and he really hit his stride when he decided screw that uh, I'm going to just say what I think yeah. and uh, quite a troubled individual but incredibly funny mm. and started talking like a black person uh, which wasn't a thing that you did on television in the 50s or 60s I don't remember which it is uh, so that that was a fascinating where his voice he started talking like himself mm. much more other people have done the opposite uh, Milton Jones very um, I've had a conversation with Milton Jones it'd be lovely to talk to him, him on this podcast um, he found he's very surreal cerebral one liners um, quite left field and he found his stuff didn't work it didn't, wasn't the way he spoke it was the way he presented himself he now, I don't know if he's still now, but he would, he would wear a terrible jumper, a terrible, slightly too 
um, gaudy jumper, very unfashionable, and will stick his hair up uh, like a sort of flame on top of his head. And if he doesn't do that, he doesn't feel that the audience will get him. And yeah. when he does do that, it works. Yeah. And I don't know if that's a slight psychological thing or, or uh, I think he's setting himself up as an outsider. When I've done gigs with him, I'm quite weird. I'm quite similar on stage to, mm. to Milton, but not as good. Uh, nice. and, and But when I've introduced him, having done something a bit weird, he'll walk on looking like a weirdo and go, who's that weirdo? Yeah. Um, thus setting himself apart and making him the alpha weirdo in the room. Um, <laughs> another one with someone we'd like to go on, this is Mark Watson, um, who uh, is a brilliant comic who is very much himself on stage. He does sort of marathon shows. He, I think he's, as long as he's 36 hours, it might be longer, wow. where he's on stage talking on and off with help from others because I think you, it's physically not possible to talk for that long. Uh, but sort of marathon shows where the audience will sometimes come and go, but some some lunatics will stay and watch the entire show usually for charity so he's very much himself on stage but he started off talking with a Welsh accent he's not Welsh mm. uh, the, the, when people have talked about him uh, they said well he's from Bristol <laughs> that's not Welsh yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's, that's a, there's a big chunk of water between and so I'd be fascinated to know why he started mm. like that he was brilliant as a comic but he was kind of a he was saying probably the same things he's, he'd say now but in a Welsh accent. Yeah. Find yeah. that very interesting. Uh, people like Eddie Izzard and Ross Noble, who are very uh, improvisational, both... Start, Eddie Izzard started off as a street performer. Mm. Um, I can't remember... I don't know what he did on stage, but uh, but he started off there. Um, Ross Noble started off as a prop comic, uh, very... Which is, implies sort of very structured, not but sort of everything's built based around these things you bring on stage. And he's turned into this sort of improvisational thing who weave shows around the audience members yeah. and the imagined people. Al Murray, pub landlord, started off doing sound effects on stage. Yes, he's an incredible mimic, isn't he? He does, like, he can do a different brands of car door yes. opening and shutting. Uh, it was on the word. I remember when I was, I was oh God, years ago, kind of doing different guns being assembled and disassembled. And I view different <laughs> aircraft going past. Yes. Uh, um, and then became a... And he's... F- very well educated, very middle class guy. I went to Oxford or Cambridge, uh, and he's he plays a sort of working class pub landlord, um, parodying sort of right wing pub think. I yeah. think is a lot of what he does. Um, but came from uh, yeah, just I, I'd be fascinated to talk to him. Yeah, some people sort of appear to have fallen to earth with their comedy voice Peter Kay appears to just talk like Peter Kay and be very funny and there's a lot of regional things where there's mm. there's people who sort of capture the voice of a region like he's very much sort of North East Manchester Greater Manchester um, Bolton Bolton I yeah. I, I, that's the Lancashire but apparently that's a very ageing thing to say so yes apparently not but I learnt this the other day if you say say Bolton's in Lancashire you, you're marking yourself as extremely old that's... it would be really interesting to kind of fold the I mean the, the kind of stuff about character and accent and what how much you lean into that or away from it I was very struck by, like Sarah Millican has this, um, not immediately kind of, sort of often where you're expecting a, a female comedy voice to go. That the pitch is high. Mm. Often nowadays, women exaggeratedly lower the. I'm doing it now. Women in the West tend to lower the pitch of her vo- their voices, and she, if anything, takes it up higher, and then creates this phenomenal 
dissonance between sometimes she's very very funny but she can also be incredibly filthy and this kind of extremely sort of floaty voice not floaty is the right way but you know quite quite a sort of innocent sounding voice Mm. and And there's a big beaming smile all the time yes Uh, (laughs) yeah 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 and and then yeah my wife uh, went to see her with her mum <laughs> and uh, they're not the not sort of most uh, sort of open talk about sex family uh, <laughs> and yes yeah, yeah, her, her eyebrows were a lot higher when she came yes. back <laughs> they're fantastic and, I, and it's almost like part of that is the, the you know a, a sort of a, a, unexpected mm. and it's part of that she doesn't wear a comedy outfit she wears you know she wears clothes she likes mm. it's not it's a and it's landing in quite an interesting place and I don't think there's going to be one answer I don't think there's going to be like we'll find somewhere we'll go here we go kind of we've opened the we finally distilled everything down to one little pearl of mm. this is the one single thing you need to know about comedy voices but it's uh, there's a lot of very interesting discussion like like Stuart's com com pod around the writing comedy and the construction of comedy but it's something that lives primarily also on the stage you're writing it and then you go and do it mm. and it would be really interesting I think to start exploring some of these things about what's actually going on in the mechanisms of performance and that you know the bottom line comes down to a voice yeah and there, there's a a sort of received wisdom in comedy that you have to find your voice and uh, you have to be true to yourself yeah and I've but in order to be true to myself, I have to talk in lots of different voices. You do do a lot of different voices because you've got God, you've got a pigeon. Uh, so I, so I, my first comedy creation was a thing called Two Posh Old Men, which was me and a friend of mine uh, improvising and talking, talking like posh old men, and improvising and then boiling that down into uh, those improvisations which are recorded into scripts, which I then animate. And it was, I, I weirdly, I'm attracted to dialogue, duologue, like. Mm. Um, uh, Another thing, in fact, I did before that, I did a thing called Birds in a Wire. So I was working as a stand-up, and I started animating to publicise my um, my stand-up shows at the end of Revenge Things, and then started animating other things and started creating online content and stuff for telly. Mm. So I did a thing called Bird in a Wire, which is two, um, two pigeons on a telephone wire, uh, which get possessed by the conversations going through the wire and the animation house who animated it uh, who then went on to animate Danger Mouse which I worked on uh, a couple of years ago found the files for it recently and sent me the files Amazing. and uh, with Jimmy Carr and uh, Rob Browse and Simon Evans did voices on, on it um, and uh, and yeah so so my comedy thoughts come in a conversation I've got a few sort of uh, hack theories about like, is it because uh, I'm, I'm I'm a Gemini and I don't know I don't believe it at all in in but it's weird that I everything I do ends up being a dialogue. Uh, I think it's also because I might have been, because I was brought up Christian uh, and I think I've got a a, um, a voice in my head which is God. You've got a whole uh, ghost there. Yeah, and uh, and so one of my characters that I do uh, Robin Nince's, uh science comedy shows is I do a Q and A with God. So I control a. Um, an animated god live with the games control, which I voice live, waggly some moustache about, and take uh, questions from the audience, um, often to, for a room full of atheists. Uh, <laughs> but I've also done it at the Green Belt Festival, um, a room full of Christians, uh, which is, uh, yeah, is an interesting way of doing it. So I sort of talk as god, I talk as posh old men, which is pretty much the same voice. I've done the same with, uh, do 
shows for kids where uh, I've been Father Christmas and interacted with um, with audiences. But I've got uh, so Little Howard is my sort of thing I'm most best known for, and he he talks like this. He uh, is a sexual boy. For some reason, his voice is deeper than my voice, uh, but his voice. I worked out was a voice I gave one of my teddies when I was a kid, yeah. uh, which has changed since my voice broke. Um, but he's a sort of kid version of me. And an interesting thing I'm interesting exploring is how that changed because he stays the same age. But I've been performing Little Howard for 20 years. I worked out that now he would be 18. Uh, yeah. And he was, yeah, he would be 18 now, but he's still a six. But I'm now in my mid-40s, started performing in my 20s. And the, and the relationship between an adult man who's clearly of father age yeah. uh, performing with a six-year-old boy is very different um, than a t- guy in his 20s performing with a six-year-old boy. You were more boy. like his brother at the start. Yeah, well, I never was never sp- specific, but yeah. I, yeah, I was kind of a big brother. Yeah. It was it was less of a father figure. It was a big brother, little brother um, thing. But now I'm very much... People see us and see me as his dad, yeah. which is a completely different... Com- it's not as funny. Because um, yeah. you don't get to both be idiots then yes. in the same way. Or it you do. something different if your dad's an idiot, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You can have and an idiot brother sort of person, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's funnier if it's sort of... Uh, but Little Howard also took on... When I first started out, I had quite a big, blinky, Father Dougal-type stage persona as a stand-up. And Little Howard took that persona. Well, I gave that persona to Little Howard and became more the straight man. And so I got a weird thing where... There's running jokes in some of my live shows and, and the TV show I did uh, where I'm physically incapable of being funny. I have a, I've been diagnosed as being clinically incapable of being funny. And part of me, despite the fact that I was writing all the scripts... Uh, co-writing all the scripts at some point um, uh, I convinced myself that I wasn't funny because I'd, <laughs> I was playing this role of, of the unfunny version of me and that sort of gave me a problem with who I was on stage when Little Howard wasn't there despite yeah. the fact no one most people wouldn't know that I also performed with Little Howard yeah. I became much more serious on stage yeah. when I'd sort of given that comedy and that licence to be childish to Little Howard yeah. uh, so there's Little Howard there's also um Roger, the manager, who talks like this, uh, he's a pigeon from Barnsley. Uh, his voice is based on uh, a comic uh, called Toby Foster, who's a radio now radio DJ and runs a comedy club up in Sheffield. He's a very funny man. Uh, and everybody uh, 20 years ago would do do their Toby Foster impression because yeah. he talked like Ted Morvis <laughs> off of uh, Heidi High. Um, and, uh, and so so he's a great voice to be able to do stuff about because he's a horrible, horrible person and he mm. has horrible opinions and you can do jokes about racism and bigotry and uh, he's a manager, he's a manipulator, he's he's exploitative um, and you can do those jokes and it's very clear that you don't mean any of them because yeah. it, firstly he's a cartoon and secondly he's got a silly voice. Yeah. Uh, another, I had a... a a character called HBOT 2000, the funny robot from the future, in the year that I got nominated for the Perrier, um, very long time ago, uh, who was a robot that did a stand-up. Uh, and his jokes were terrible. Uh, they would all be about intricate parts of the computer. The punchline would be mm-hmm. about something about Dixons. And so it, the shape of a joke, but then fell yeah. apart and wasn't anything funny. But after every joke, he would make a very loud, woo, showbiz noise. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly the bad joke would become a funny joke I was at a really interesting workshop on Saturday which was all writers and people who work in AI and what they were trying to work out was would they as writers, comedy writers ever be made 
you know, in, written out by AI coming in and doing their job. And the conclusion seems to be probably not the best you collect for, but AI could. I don't know churn out some similarities between things or draw comparisons that might be interesting like another form of inspiration this is the Talking Funny podcast there's also been a lot of interest um, and I think Pat Healy who's part of Talking Funny has been involved in an attempt to get a robot that did stand up so I suppose what I'm asking a very long way around is people knew it was you and they still were, they were still laughing they weren't going well this is going to be terrible it was funny Little Howard's first trip was, was basically trying to mechanise stand up comedy I would do a um he would do comparing tricks with the audience. So he he's pre-recorded, pre-animated. Most of the time, I can now do him live, but at the time, I would be on stage and he would be interacting with me and I would be controlling his timing with a, with a presentation clicker. And at the end of the show, after him badgering me to let him do stand-up, and I'd be going, you can't do stand-up, you're not real. Um, at the end of the show, he would do stand-up and he would interact with the audience, with me standing on stage, not voicing him. Yeah. Um, and I would control he would do an any question section and he would be able to answer the questions that the audience asked and that would work because I'd been in that situation lots of times and I knew what the audience would ask it's never random is it um, yeah. it's, with adults it is with kids it, it can be a bit more it's random very, com- yeah. it's entirely random with kids. You, cannot, you cannot say and guess what kids are going to and so the fun of it was Firstly, it was like a choose-your-own-adventure game that the audience were playing they were aware that this was, a, this was all pre-recorded yeah. and I was accessing the answers on stage and I was doing it very badly because <laughs> I, uh, I, I sort of I'm dyslexic and I, I'd have a cue sheet but I under pressure I, it just turns into marks on a bit of paper yeah. and uh, so I would be scrabbling part of the fun would be someone trying to catch me out and they'd see me I'd be sitting there with a the keyboard pressing buttons and referring to a crib sheet and uh, sounds incredibly unprofessional now but I think that was part of its charm and <laughs> I would press a button that, that navigated Little Howard's um, database to the response mm-hmm. for that question. Uh, and so it wasn't AI. It was clearly an attempt at AI, but with an idiot in the middle trying to make it work. And it worked incredibly well. And mm-hmm. the, the more the more haphazard it was, the more fun the audience had. And it was turned into a game between me and them to which everybody wanted me to win, yeah. um, to come up with the funniest answer yeah. from this selection. And that came from um, hearing an interview with Al Murray, um, who treats being a stand-up like a day job and sits and writes, or certainly used to, would spend all day writing, n- not ad-libs, but he, would, he, would, he does brilliant audience interaction. Yeah. And a lot of that comes from him sitting and writing and thinking about all the people he might meet yeah. in a comedy audience and writing a joke for each of them yeah. uh, and I did that with Little Howard uh, but I didn't have to just write it down I had to voice and animate yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I made it much harder for myself um, and so it was trying trying to create a um, a an automated version of stand-up as a slightly smug joke about is it possible to automate yeah. stand-up we're yeah. all talking funny mouse or foghorn tortoise bunny slurred or stuttered or just like thank you very much for listening uh, please like and subscribe coming up we have uh, conversations with Tony Law the fantastic Canadian multi-voiced and deeply surreal and brilliant comedian talking about his various comic voices uh, and then we have the brilliant Rosie Jones who's going to talk to us about how she presents herself on stage how she talks and how that is all affected by her having cerebral Bye. And you might not quite know what I mean. We're all talking funny, might as well just face it, sunny. Being different's what makes us alike. 
Yes, we're all talking funny, it's the truth, believe it, honey. Some of us talk funny through a mic. 